often feel like I should have lived in the Victorian era. I, I love the feel of novels set during that era, Sherlock Holmes, uh, the Murdoch mysteries, and, and the like. Uh, but when I get feeling a little bit too much this way, on the Internet, and pretty much the feeling goes away. So what exactly is an anachronism? Uh, when my wife saw the, the title this morning, she said, you got to change that title. Nobody will know what you're talking about. And sure enough, Cindy Place told me this morning, she said, I don't know what that word means. I said, are you going to explain that word? I said, I'm going to explain it first thing. So here it is. The, the, the word is based on the root crone or chronos, which means time. And so an anachronism is a, a detail from another time. It's a detail from the wrong time normally. Uh, we find anachronisms even in great literature. For instance, in one of Shakespeare's plays, Julius Caesar, one of the characters says, the clock has stricken three. Well, of course, in ancient Rome, during the time of Julius Caesar, there were no clocks to strike three. A clock in ancient Rome is in the wrong time. Uh, we often see anachronisms in movies, uh, whether we recognize them or not. Uh, my understanding is in the movie Braveheart, William Wallace and all of his Scottish brethren wore kilts. The problem is that kilts weren't introduced until 400 years later after the time of William Wallace, sometime in the 1700s. Uh, in one of the Indiana Jones movies, the hero takes an airplane ride and, and they trace the, the route on a map uh, there on the, on the screen. Uh, unfortunately, two of the countries, Thailand and Jordan, weren't countries in 1936 when the movie is set. Thailand was called... I have, a, I, have a, I have a candy bar in my drawer, if you know. Thailand was called Siam. Who said that? John Place gets the, gets the candy bar. It was called Siam in, until 1939, and Jordan was called Transjordan until 1949. Now, those anachronisms are unintentional. Mel Gibson and Steven Spielberg didn't do their homework. And that's why they made these historical blunders. But writers of, of books and movies sometimes intentionally use anachronism. And this is increasingly so. Have you noticed that books and television shows and movies often depict characters and even the general population from past centuries as if they have the sensibilities of modern-day progressives. Sometimes the writers of, of such media use anachronism to try to convince us that the average human being accepted homosexuality decades, if not centuries ago. When we see the response of characters to homosexuality in period pieces like Downton Abbey, we need to realize that the writers are intentionally using anachronism to try to convince us 
that human beings have always accepted this. And if we were just a little bit more mainstream, we were just a little bit more human, we would accept it as well. Progressives often tell us that they are on the right side of history, but they have to rewrite history to try to convince us. And there's one more area of anachronism that's probably more important than anything that I've spoken of to that point, and that is in the area of interpreting Scripture. When we seek to interpret Scripture, it can be very easy for us to import our modern times into the Scriptures. Rather than interpret Scripture based on how people thought and acted in the first century, we interpret them based on how people think and act today. And when we set a Bible text in the wrong time, that is almost a certain way to skew the meaning of Scripture. And we come face to face with this tendency as we seek to understand one of the most controversial passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14 is about tongues. And my research for these messages in in 1 Corinthians 14, has been difficult. I think I mentioned this last week in the, in the second service. It's, difficult. it's been difficult for me to navigate because it seems to me that many present-day Bible scholars seek to interpret this passage in the context of the 20th century Pentecostal and charismatic movements rather than in the context of the first century Corinthian Christians and their church. Intentionally or unintentionally, evangelical anachronism permeates what they say. And so we need to try very hard not to fall into that error. And the best way to do that is to get a a real tight grip on the historical context of what was happening in the church in Corinth. So I'm going, to, I'm going to summarize that historical context in a handful of big ideas, okay? And you've heard these before, but it's probably been months and months. You know, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians for 18 months already. And so it's real easy, I think, for us to forget some of this context. So you've probably heard some of these things before. So first of all, We need to talk about the legitimate spiritual gift of tongues. The spiritual gift of tongues was defined by the precedent set on the day of Pentecost. And on Pentecost, what happened? The 120 who were in the upper room went out and spoke in human languages that other people were able to understand. They were able to supernaturally speak in languages that they have never learned. I took four years of French in high school, and that's just not fair. So the the legitimate, genuine, spiritual gift of tongues 
as defined by the the first usage of this in Scripture is the, is the ability for a person to speak in a, in a language or a family of dialects that they have never learned. And then the second piece of historical context that we need to get a grip on is the history and especially the composition of the Corinthian church. The Apostle Paul spent 18 months planting the church in Corinth, and then he wrote the letter that we call 1 Corinthians to this church when it was only five years old. So think about this. All of the Gentile Christians, and Corinth was primarily a Gentile church, all of those Gentile Christians had been saved no more than five years. Most of them were, were still baby Christians, newly minted and saved out of a completely pagan culture and worldview. They had not had much time at all to, imbo- to imbibe a full-blown Christian worldview. Spiritual immaturity marked the church. We know this based on what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3. Major problems abounded. This whole book is about problems that that Paul was trying to address. The church was dysfunctional in numerous ways. And that brings me to the third major piece of historical context that we need to get a hold of. And that is the immaturity and problems in the Corinthian church. In the three and a half years after Paul left, before he wrote uh, this letter, Some world-renowned Christian leaders ministered in that church, including Apollos and Peter. And the members of this church were divided by their allegiance to these various teachers. And this division meant that Paul could not simply write this church and tell them what to do. You need to get a hold of that fact. I'm going to come back to this. What was happening in that church with tongues was a problem. And because of the history of that church, because of their immaturity, Paul could not simply come and say, Stop it! This is not the right way! Because many of them would have simply rejected what he had to say out of hand. He could not deal with it in that way. The first church of Corinth was filled with many other problems, any one of which would cause most of us to head for the exits. I mean, it really is amazing when you think about it that this church still existed a half century later. This is not a church where you found love and friendship. This was a church where you found competition and status-seeking and interpersonal conflict. The members tolerated incest within the membership, Christians using prostitutes. They were suing each other in court. There was wrangling and backbiting over whether they should eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, which in a city like Corinth was just about all the meat that could be bought. When the Corinthians celebrated the Lord's Supper, apparently there were those in the church 
who brought food and wine for themselves before the Lord's Supper was celebrated and ate their own little, their own little dinner together or their own little dinner by themselves. And people that did not have, like slaves, were simply left out. It was potluck in reverse. It was pot unluck. And add to that what we will find when we get to 1 Corinthians 15, and that is that some members even held heretical ideas about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Christians. Now, it's easy to forget all of these problems that Paul addressed to this point in this letter. But when we do remember them, when we really get a hold of what this local church must have looked like, we have to scratch our heads and wonder why any Christian would want to pattern their lives and their church after such a local congregation. How could we look at a congregation so worldly, so arrogant, so divisive, so immoral, so gluttonous, so disorderly, so unloving, and think that they are an example of how we ought to use spiritual gifts? And yet that is precisely what happened in the early 1900s with the Pentecostal movement and in the 1970s with the Charismatic movement. And those two movements have basically swept evangelicalism. And when you think about it, you really do have to scratch your head. So then, paired with that third point is a fourth point. And that is the de-emphasis of tongues in the New Testament. The de-emphasis of tongues. In all of the letters written by all of the apostles to the churches that are found in the New Testament, this is the only letter that mentions the spiritual gift of tongues. Now, a number of those letters mention spiritual gifts. This is the only letter that mentions the the gift of tongues. And that fact leaves us wondering why. Why is this the only book where Paul mentions tongues? And I I believe that part of the answer to that has to do with the fact that what was Paul dealing with in 1 Corinthians? He was dealing with problems. And the gift of tongues was a problem. It's not something that I think Paul intended to emphasize. It was something that Paul intended to correct. And again, modern evangelicalism has taken this in exactly 180 degrees in the wrong direction. And then one final element in this historical summary of the the Corinthian church in the first century, and this is a bit more specific, and that is the openness of the Corinthians to mistaken ideas about spirituality, about what it means to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit. Paul begins chapter 12 reminding the Corinthians, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. These Corinthian Christians, I I, I think, 
some of them at least, still base their ideas of what it meant for a person to be spiritual based on what they had experienced in these pagan cults before they were saved. Many of them had come out of mystery religions, and in those mystery religions, they had ecstatic experiences. How many of you know what I mean by ecstatic experiences? So an ecstatic experience is where you, to some degree, lose control of yourself. Okay? And in many cases, that ecstatic experience takes the, the form of, of speaking nonsensical syllables what are called tongues. So understand, some of these Corinthians had experienced that before they were ever saved. And what was taught in those mystery religions is that when they had these kinds of ecstatic experiences, it meant that they were united with the God. At that point, that God inhabited them. Now keep a hold of that fact. Because I believe that what happened in the Corinthian church is that some of these immature Christians that came out of this kind of a background assumed that that kind of ecstatic experience speaking in tongues meant that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And we know that there was, there was this kind of competition in the Corinthian church with regard to who was the most spiritual. And many of these believed that if you had this ecstatic experience, then obviously you were filled with the Spirit and you were the most spiritual. Does that sound familiar to you? It ought to. exactly what happened in the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s and again in the Charismatic movement... So, I have purposely taken a great deal of time here to try to build a very strong foundation for understanding 1 Corinthians 14. But I think that is necessary because we're going to be building on gumbo for the next few weeks as we study this chapter. How many of you have ever heard of gumbo? You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, I think I've talked to you about this before. My first church was in, in Greenville, Mississippi. Greenville, Mississippi is actually below sea level. And so everything there just socks down, and, and, and the, the water table is actually at ground level most of the time. And some, uh, some of the, the soil there, it's a mixture of clay and loam. And when it gets wet, it is, it is extremely gummy. And, and the entire time that we lived there, we heard, and I don't know if these were apocryphal, I don't know if they were true or not, but we heard these stories about farmers who would take off across a field, and as they, as they, got, you know, as they tried to chug across the field, they would, their, their boots would pick up more and more mud, more and more gumbo, until finally they died of heart attack. I don't know if that's true. You know, poor farmers being buried out there right now in gumbo. I don't know. But that was, that was, that was the story. 
And that's the way gumbo was until it dried out. And when gumbo dried out, it would split. It would crack. And I'm talking about big cracks. And if your house didn't have a strong foundation, your foundation would crack. And when your foundation cracked, where we lived in Greenville, Mississippi, the, the, how, the, the, the value of your home went down by about 40% because you had windows that wouldn't open or close, doors that wouldn't open or close. There was a big business in that area of trying to repair foundations, but you wanted to make sure that you didn't buy a house where they had repaired the foundation. We need to have a strong foundation in the historical context of what was going on in the Corinthian church if we're going to understand 1 Corinthians 14. So, with that foundation in place, let's turn our attention to the difficult 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Now, today we're not going to get very far. My goal today is to give you three overarching observations that will serve as as guardrails, which will serve as guidelines for understanding this chapter. And I'm going to make the first of these observations before I even read any of the chapter because it will influence how I read the chapter. So I want you to take a moment with your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians 14, and I want you to trace down through the first 19 verses And I want you to to notice a remarkable feature of what Paul writes. Sometimes he speaks of a tongue, and at other times he speaks of tongues. Sometimes he speaks of a tongue, singular. At other times he speaks of tongues, plural. So just take a moment, look down through there, see what I'm talking about. Now, the change back and forth is so subtle that it's easy to overlook. And in fact, many modern expositors take no notice of the distinction at all. But if there is one thing that I have learned about the Apostle Paul in 35 years of preaching, it is that the Apostle Paul is extremely precise when he uses words, including plural and singular To state what I'm saying another way, Paul is not using the singular, a tongue, one time, and the plural, tongues, another time, simply for the sake of variety. This is not an accident without any significance at all. Now, in this particular instance, the old King James Version is actually superior to the new King James Version. Anybody here have an old King James Version in front of them? Okay, so several of you do. Um, And it does, the reason I say that it's superior is because it actually highlights this distinction. 
Let me read from the old King James Version, verses 4 and 5. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. I would that ye all spake with tongues, plural, but rather that ye prophesied. So the translators of the old King James Version believed that it was important to understand that when Paul used the singular, a tongue, that he was referring to an unknown tongue. Now the word unknown in the Old King James Version is in italics because in the Old King James Version that indicates that the word was not in the original Greek text. It was added by the translators to help people understand the text. And in this case, those translators were spot on. When Paul uses the singular, a tongue, he is referring to ecstatic speech. He's talking about nonsensical syllables strung together. So when Paul uses the phrase, a tongue, he is not talking about what happened at Pentecost. Okay? Can I get you to, can you, can I get you to repeat that with me? Okay? Let's take a time out. When Paul uses a singular, a tongue, he is not talking about what happened at Pentecost. Not. Okay? On the other hand, when Paul uses the plural tongues, he is indeed talking about the genuine spiritual gift of tongues that first occurred at Pentecost. And there's a reason why it is plural. We get a clue back in chapter 12. Flip back a page or two to 1 Corinthians 12 and look with me at verse 10 where Paul speaks of different kinds of tongues. That's the way he describes the spiritual gift. Look down in verse 28. There Paul calls this spiritual gift varieties of tongues. Now actually both of these verses use the same word in the original language and that's the word genus. And have you ever heard the word genus before? Genus is normally used in what context? It's used in biology. A genus is a group of species And here, when Paul uses the word genus to describe this, he's talking about a genus of languages that have similar characteristics. Or I think probably he's actually talking about a genus of... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, Dialects. Okay? So think about about a, a person... Who, who English is not their native language. They, 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 they are given the spiritual gift of English. Okay? Some of us down south need that gift. So when, when, when you're given the gift of, of English, you can, you can speak the dialect that is spoken in England. 
You can speak the, the dialect of English that's spoken in Australia. You can speak the dialect of English that's spoken in the Bronx in New York City. You can speak the dialect that's spoken in Boston. And you can even speak the dialect that's spoken down south here where we add syllables to words. I think that's the idea here. That's what happened on Pentecost. And in other instances, when God gave this spiritual gift, men and women were able to supernaturally communicate in a language, in a family of dialects. Now, dialects in many languages are more significant than they are in English. Their differences are. So I hope that you see that we have established a huge aid to understanding this chapter. And here's the big thing. This aid to understanding this chapter has been around for centuries, since 1611. It's not something that is due to the influence of the Pentecostal movement. Evangelicalism. It predates that time. And I believe it gives us real insight into what Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church. Now, with that understanding that there's a big difference between a tongue and tongues, I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. And I'm going to highlight this distinction by changing a few words. As I read. So follow along with me closely, please, as we read verses 1 through 19 here in 1 Corinthians 14. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in an ecstatic utterance does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in an ecstatic utterance edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with languages, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with languages, unless indeed he interprets or that word could be translates, that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if you come, uh, if you come, if I come to you speaking with languages, what shall I profit you? Unless I speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by teaching. Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue, and that's, that I believe means the physical tongue, what's in your mouth, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of, and the word there is not tongues, it's not even, so I don't think it's good to translate it languages. Or ecstatic utterance. I, I, I think it's the idea of a sound. The word in the original is the word phona, from which we get the word phone. So, 
there may be so many kinds of sounds in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the, the sound, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in an ecstatic utterance pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an ecstatic utterance, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with my spirit, and I will pray also with the understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not understand what you say? For you indeed give thanks well. He's talking now about these ecstatic utterances. For you indeed give thanks well, but the other's not edified. I thank my God. I speak with languages more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in an ecstatic utterance which cannot be understood. Does that, does that not make this a little more understandable? It's a very difficult passage to understand, difficult to follow what Paul is saying. But I think if you grasp this distinction that, that I'm seeking to make, the chapter actually becomes more understandable, and we will work our way through it beginning next Sunday. Now, if, if this interpretation of the passage is correct, and I strongly believe that it is, then we're left with a second question. How did the Corinthians come to engage in ecstatic tongue speaking? Well, I've already implied the answer, uh, so it shouldn't surprise you. I believe Gentile believers imported this ecstatic experience from their pagan religions that they practiced before they were converted. In those religions, these ecstatic experiences signaled that they were united with these gods. The religions taught that in those moments of ecstasy, they were filled with the gods. And so it was easy for them to think that similar experiences signaled that they were truly filled with the Holy Spirit. So for them, this ecstatic speech was the ultimate mark of spirituality. But let me, let me backtrack a bit here. I, I can't prove what I'm about to say, but, but I think if we use a little bit of sanctified imagination, I think we can, I think we can piece together what, what, what no doubt happened at Corinth. Uh, I, I used to have a... Uh, a professor at Bob Jones who used to say the best aid to interpretation is a sanctified imagination. Some of you know who I'm talking about. I've never forgotten that. And this is one of those times where I think we need to use a little bit of sanctified imagination. So, so here's what I think happened. I believe that during the 18 months that Paul was in Corinth, he probably at some point explained what happened at Pentecost. And how the Holy Spirit was poured out on the infant church and how that was attended by the Holy Spirit giving the miraculous gift of tongues, of languages. And perhaps he even explained that this same gift marked the inclusion of the Samaritans and then the inclusion of the Gentiles into the church. 
Now, if Paul didn't do this, maybe Peter did when he was at the church because Peter would have actually been there on the day of Pentecost. It may have been a very natural thing for Peter to do this. But at some point after Paul had departed from Corinth, and I think probably not while Peter was there either, immature Gentile believers in the church counterfeited the genuine spiritual gift of languages and substituted ecstatic experiences that they had had in these old pagan religions from which they had come. And I believe that what happened then has been repeated in churches during the 20th century as the charismatic movement marched through evangelicalism. That counterfeit experience swallowed many in the Corinthian church, and once they had the experience... The experience was all. And no one could tell them that it wasn't genuine. And this experience and the insistence that it marked those who were truly spiritual was actually the root of much of the division and the dissension in the Corinthian church. And again... I saw some of you were around in the 1970s. I saw what happened in many evangelical churches where, where the charismatic movement just moved into church after church and just swallowed them up in exactly this way. Now at some point, someone in the church communicated with Paul and told him about all the problems that were going on in the church. And one of these problems that was communicated was this whole issue of ecstatic speech that had been substituted for the genuine gift of languages in the Corinthian church. And so here in 1 Corinthians, beginning in 1 Corinthians 12 and then 13, but especially focused in chapter 14, Paul was seeking to correct this counterfeit. But... And that's capital B, capital U, capital T. But Paul was in no position to simply write a letter to the Corinthians regarding this ecstatic tongue speaking and tell them to just stop it. Paul couldn't come to them as an apostle of Jesus Christ and say, what you're doing, you're headed in the wrong direction. It's wrong. Stop it. Because many of them, because of the grip that this experience had on them, they simply would have dismissed him outright. They would not have listened to him. So rather than coming in a, from a position of apostolic authority, the Apostle Paul came and sought to influence. He sought to convince that the direction that many of them in the, in the church were headed was the wrong direction. Paul was trying to convince, influence, rather than simply lay down the law. And with that bit of imaginative history, that brings us to a final question. And that is, how did Paul persuade the Corinthians with regard to this ecstatic tongue-speaking? And that was with a twofold emphasis and a three-part contrast. Twofold emphasis, 
about that? Threefold contrast, okay? First, the twofold emphasis. Paul said to them, we must pursue love and seek to edify. There's a, there's a, there's a reason that 1 Corinthians 14 follows 1 Corinthians 13. That was because Paul's trump card, the strongest point that he could make with regard to the proper use of spiritual gifts, had to do with agape love. What's the first two words of chapter 14? Pursue agape. And that word pursue is a very strong word in the original language. It has the idea of pursuing something and chasing it down until you finally get a hold of it. In fact, in nearly every other place in the New Testament where you find this word, it is translated persecute. What do you do when you persecute somebody? Well, back then you chased them down until you got a hold of them. That's the idea. Paul says, chase down agape until you get a hold of it. Because agape is what needs to control how you use your spiritual gifts, including and particularly the spiritual gift of tongues. And then the the second emphasis, you can see, I think, in the number of times that Paul uses the words edify and edification. The verses that we read just a few moments ago use those words five times, but the idea is found in nearly every verse. And these two are linked, okay? If I chase down agape love, then everything that I do in the church is going to be for what purpose? It's going to be for the purpose of building up others and not myself. Let me ask you, the tongues that are practiced in the charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches today, what are they about? Are they about building up other people? Not a chance. They're about building up me. This is about my spiritual walk. And Paul's saying, no. You've got it wrong. You're headed in the wrong direction. Chase down agape love. And agape love is focused on the the object of love and building up that object. And so you're going to see that emphasis throughout this chapter because that emphasis takes a person 180 degrees in the opposite direction of those that were using this ecstatic experience in the Corinthian church. And then these verses are also dominated by a three-sided contrast. Now, I believe that that is one reason why these verses are so difficult to follow. Most of us, we're used to, to comparing and contrasting two things, right? You know, it's easy to, to set two things side by side and, and, and compare and contrast. Some of you, you know that when we were trying to pick the carpet, how many, how many choices did we give you? We gave you two choices. Okay. We didn't give you five choices. We didn't give you ten choices. We gave you two choices. It's easy to c- compare two things, right? 
Paul's comparing and contrasting three things here. What are they? One is the, this ecstatic experience. The second one is the legitimate, genuine gift, spiritual gift of languages or dialects. And the third is prophecy. And so it's almost like a round robin, and it gets a little difficult to follow. But starting next Sunday, that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow this twofold emphasis, pursue love and do everything for edification, and we're going to work out this threefold comparison and contrast of ecstatic experience, the genuine gift of tongues, and the gift of prophecy. So come back, and I'll see you next Sunday. And we're not going to discuss this in the second service. Isn't that it's perfect timing? Because Maxim is going to preach in the second service. So you're on hold till next Sunday. Now, let me, let me conclude by saying, and I think I've implied this in my message, what happened in Corinth was actually a precursor for what has happened in broader evangelicalism since about 1900. Paul tried to curb it in Corinth with great difficulty. And we actually find ourselves in much the same spot today. We don't have any authority over over other local churches. We don't have any authority over over other Christian denominations. And so we need to pay attention to how Paul seeks to influence how how Paul seeks to persuade with with regard to this issue. Because we may very well find ourselves in a similar situation where we can't speak with apostolic authority. All we can do is to try to persuade somebody you need to be pursuing love and working for the edification of others in the church. That's what's supposed to be happening in a church body. And so I I hope that you and I will will learn. And... uh, We've put our feet in the starting blocks this morning. Next Sunday, I'll I'll shoot the starter's pistol, and and we'll be off to the races as we work our way through uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14.